uh, I do want to encourage you to be praying, church. We've got um, a significant week in front of us for some of our students, and so let's be committed to praying for them and looking forward to the lesson, uh, lessons that they come back telling us that they have learned this week. A question for you as we turn our attention to the Bible this morning in our continuing series of sermons in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. A number of years ago, the the question's coming in a second, uh, my wife and I had an interaction with a dear Christian lady, not this church, at another church, who I think was very sincere, loved Jesus, and in the midst of talking about how um, Christians are supposed to be interacting with one another, she made the statement that, and this is almost a direct quote, I remember most of what she said verbatim, um, what goes on in my life is between me and the Holy Spirit. It is none of anybody else's business. If you're a Christian this morning, question, what do you think of that statement? Can you identify perhaps a little bit with where she was coming from? I mean, if if you're honest, is there a part of you that kind of goes like, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit of what she was probably feeling too. On the other hand, is there anything that makes you wonder if that's a completely biblically accurate statement? It's a good question. Our passage this morning is going to get into that. We're reading from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them. I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to do some reflecting on what for all people at all times is an important and relevant topic, and for us in our modern culture is maybe especially an especially sensitive one, and that is whose business is my business. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through six. Our Lord says to his disciples, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is our Lord's word for us. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look at your words given to us through your precious Son, I pray that you would speak this morning, that your word would do its work as you have promised that it would. When your word goes out, it would not come back void. So we trust you, Father God, to instruct us, uh, to teach us, to convict us, to give us hope, to set us uh, straight, and to help us live more for you, for our good and for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Maybe one of the most familiar and most often quoted parts of the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps one of the most often misquoted, (laughs) judge not, boy, who in modern America can't get behind that, right? Don't judge, there it is in the Bible, black and white, well, red and white, depending on what kind of Bible version you have. I mean, it's biblical, so who can argue with it? That's like, that's practically our modern American cultural mantra, right? Don't judge me, bro. 
It's in the Bible, Jesus said it, so therefore everybody mind your own business. That may be perhaps especially true here in the Pacific Northwest, where we, maybe even a bit more so than the average American, really prize our space and our individualism. Uh, particularly if you were raised on the, the far left coast here or particularly the Pacific Northwest, you might not even realize if you moved here from other parts of the country, you notice there's sort of cultural differences even amongst regions. And here, one of the defining characteristics of not only being a modern American, but being in the Pacific Northwest, man, we prize our individualism and our space. And we do not appreciate people telling us what they think we ought to do. Now, oftentimes, that's not just cultural. Oftentimes, that's been reinforced by bad experiences many of us have had. And many of those bad experiences, unfortunately, have taken place in churches. Perhaps you've known a situation or been involved in a situation where perhaps somebody else in church felt a little bit too free to tell you where your life wasn't measuring up to God's standards, in their opinion. And those experiences are not pleasant, to say the least. When we're coming at... This part of the Sermon on the Mount, from that angle, it's very easy to essentially hear when Jesus says, don't judge that you be not judged. Like, what does, that, what does that mean? What's the main point? It's very easy to hear the main point is simply, mind your own stinking business, right? Just back off. Don't be so into one another's stuff. You take care of your stuff. Let them take care of their stuff. Man, who can't live with that? We've been in the Sermon on the Mount, which as we've seen from the beginning, is Jesus telling his disciples fairly early as he was starting his ministry what it's going to mean to be his disciples. What does it mean to be a Christian, a follower of Christ? And these kind of three key principles have been um, this, the foundation of the Sermon on the Mount. They've been consistently applied to life throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The first is that sort of God's world is invading our world. There's a collision of worlds, as we've been referring to in the sermon series, as God's world and value system come into the value system of a sinful, rebellious planet in the person of Jesus. So there's this conflicting, two conflicting value systems. And secondly, we've seen that Christians are to be representatives of God's world in this world. So you and I, as Christians, in how we live and in how we speak, are to testify to the gospel and to God's values in this world. But that's very hard because the collision is often rough and we're sinners ourselves. And so the third and final principle that Jesus has come back to repeatedly is that he himself is the key to doing this. He doesn't just tell us to be better Christians. He says, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to make you the kind of God-reflecting people you're supposed to be. I've come to give you a new heart. That's the gospel. And he says, these are the three things as disciples you have to keep in mind. They define the life of a Christian disciple. Okay, well, what does that look like then? What does that mean practically? Well, that's the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's taken those three principles and applied them over and over and over to show how that changes your life when it comes to relationships and, and marriage and how we handle our money and how we handle our religious practice. And today, he's going to talk about how it shapes the way we engage in relationship with one another how the Christian community does life together, but not in an unhealthy way, in a healthy way. Now, when Jesus gets to the business of uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, the question becomes, okay, so, so how is that an application of these key Sermon on the Mount principles? Well, what is he saying and what is he not saying? And perhaps because of where we're at culturally, I'd like to begin this morning with what he's not saying so that we're clear on that, and then we'll move more heavily into what he is saying. 
We know that when Jesus says, do not judge, he doesn't mean everybody mind your own business and stay out of each other's stuff. That's actually not what he means at face value with a period at the end of it. And we know that for a variety of reasons. Uh, He himself, later on in Matthew chapter 18, for example, says that if there's a a Christian who's caught in unrepentant sin and they just refuse to um, change their tune at all despite repeated gracious attempts to get them to do so, at some point that becomes the church's business. Jesus himself said that. So clearly he doesn't mean everybody's totally on their own. And this is a, a principle that's picked up on repeatedly and consistently throughout the Bible. Uh, The New Testament in many places teaches that there's a one-anothering that takes place within the life of a church. Maybe nowhere more so clearly than in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, speaking sort of um, um, as personified of the whole church, he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. So God's divine instructions to this first century congregation in the city of Corinth is you're not to be involved in holding people outside the church to the standards of godly living because they're not even followers of Christ. They need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel of grace. So don't judge them, but he's very clear in asking a rhetorical question. Is it not those inside the church whom those of us inside the church are to judge? So this is really interesting, isn't it? On the one hand, the Bible is telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that it's part of our job to judge one another, and it uses the same word. On the other hand, it's telling us here in Matthew chapter 7, today's passage, that we are not to judge one another. So clearly, at the very least, there is a tension. What is going on here? Well, this apparent tension is resolved when you realize that the first corinthians passage is describing healthy church life the matthew chapter 7 passage our main passage this morning is describing unhealthy church life now again i I don't know about you hopefully i'm not projecting too much of my own stuff onto you guys when i say this but as a modern pacific northwestern christian i kind of struggle a little bit sometimes with is there a healthy way to judge one another after all let's be honest in our context whenever we use that word we refer to somebody judging somebody else it's always negative isn't it i mean you just use the word judge and we we mean negative things by it you're not supposed to do that it's an ugly thing so how can the bible use that word and say there is an ugly bad way to do it but there's also a good and healthy way to do it what does good healthy judging look like it may be worth taking a minute to think about that it sort of reminds me of a couple of weeks back when when jesus was talking about the topic of fasting voluntarily abstaining from food or other things specifically so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and he began that passage saying when you fast do it well don't do it poorly that's essentially what he said but but we had to begin that sermon kind of stepping back and saying well hey as americans let's face it fasting voluntarily abstaining from food is not something we're really good at (laughs) So this assumption that we're fasting, period, like we have to talk for a minute about fasting and then talk about how to do it well and do it poorly, which was Jesus' main point. And I think sort of the same kind of thing is going on here. It's as if our Lord is saying, when you're involved in one another's lives, church, do it well, don't do it poorly. That's essentially what today's passage is about. 
He's assuming Christians are involved in one another's lives, holding each other accountable and helping one another live for Jesus better. But as modern Americans, we have some built-in resistance to that idea. And so it may be worth thinking about what he has in mind for a minute to make better sense out of what's really being said in this passage. In brief, a healthy biblical community as pictured in the Bible is going to have a couple of characteristics involved. We'll just cover these quickly. They're subjects of whole other sermons that we've preached before. I bring these things up again now just by way of quick uh, reminder or refresher to get our thinking focused on the context. First, within a healthy church community where there is relationship with one another, the goal is to display Jesus. Uh, the goal is to display God's glory. That's the reason, if I'm thinking biblically, that's the reason I come to church. That's the reason as a Christian I choose a church and I get involved in a church. It's not primarily because I like it there or there's nice people there or it's close to my home or it has convenient service times, though all those things may factor into my decision-making somewhere. None of them are the main point. If I'm thinking biblically, when I'm thinking biblically, the reason I choose and become involved in a church is so that I can display God's glory because that has to be done most effectively in community. You see, a, a church, a local church like ours is, one of the pictures in the Bible is the body of Christ. Uh, Jesus made visible, like his physical body. That's, that's the part of him that, that is seen. It's, it's us, a church together. A local church is a group of people redeemed by the grace of Jesus from our sins who covenant together to form a whole that is bigger than the sum of the individual parts, the, the individual people who make it up. And that whole displays the nature and character of God and how we live together. So that's the purpose of the church. When we come together and interact with one another, somehow that's supposed to put the gospel and the glory of God on display. That means that relationally, it's a group effort. Um, it's a group effort. Relationally, a local church is more about the whole than it is about the individual parts. We're not primarily an unconnected crowd that coincidentally chose to shop at the same religious store. I go to that church because it's close, and a lot of other people go there because it's close too, and we have no connection with one another. We just all happen to choose the same place, but there's no implication in our relationship with one another. That's not primarily the vision of a church community. Maybe a better image would be that of a team working together to accomplish a goal that, that the individuals could never accomplish on their own. Perhaps like a, a group of climbers ascending a world-class peak. We're tethered together, and, and we all make it or don't make it together based on how the whole group functions. Nobody gets left behind, and everybody is needed to get the job done. And all of this happens, thirdly and finally, under God's authority, not man's. Uh, this all happens under God's authority, the kind of team or community that displays God's glory is something that individual Christians opt into. I choose to become a part of. I, I join the team. I, I pledge to do my part for success. I invite the input of fellow travelers into my life to an appropriate extent. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because that's what our Lord commanded us to do. That's why we do it. Not because it's what people want, not because the pastor said so, not because that's what my mom thinks, that's what made my mom happy or my husband or my wife happy. 
It's because that's what our Lord said. This is captured so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, which tells, uh, sorry, 21, which tells, again, a congregation of Christians in the first century, much like us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That submit to one another is biblical community. That's church. There's, there's a sense in which, like, I lay down some of my rights for you and for the greater good that we have all been called together by Jesus to accomplish. I, I consider other people's needs as greater than my own, for example. I invite you in to speak into my life to an extent, and I pledge to take the time and energy to speak into your life. These are all ways that we submit to one another. We give our individual rights to the larger group, and we don't do it for one another's sake, ultimately. We do it out of reverence for Christ because Jesus is so holy to us, because Jesus is so beautiful to us, we delight to put him on display in his community. So we choose to join a church out of reverence for Christ. So the point of all this is that there's this, this mutual submission thing going on in the biblical vision of what a local church like Harvest is supposed to look and feel like. It's an opening up of ourselves to others in our church so that we can help one another put Jesus on display in how we live. So healthy biblical community does not mean me telling you how to live up to the standards that I think you should live up to. Well, in my opinion, here's what every family should do with their kids and school choice options. And you're not doing it, I'm going to call you out on it. That's not the kind of thing that's envisioned here. Rather, it's me helping you meet Jesus' standard as clearly revealed in his word of what he wants your life to be, which you as a Christian have already pledged yourself to. I'm just helping you along because none of us can do it alone. By the way, you're helping me do the same thing. So that's the kind of community that God is envisioning. Uh, healthy churches are not like hyper behavior control committees, you know? where everybody's looking at one another going, are you doing the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? You're living the wrong way. Shape up. That's not the idea at all. It's more of a people, a group of people that have locked arms together to say, how can we put Jesus on display and help one another live for him? And last thing I'll say on this, by the way, that's very practically speaking, one of the reasons we talk about formal church membership a lot here at Harvest. Um, Among other things, when you formally join the church, it's a way of saying to everybody else, I'm in, right? (laughs) I'm in. Not necessarily everybody who attends a church is at a place with Jesus where they're ready to make that commitment. So how do I know who I am doing life together with? Well, church membership is a way to do that. It's it's a way to say, I am part of we. Um, I'm in. This vision of church is something I believe, I feel called to, and so out of reverence for Christ, I'm gonna get involved and help do it here at Harvest. And that creates the space to invite us to get involved in one another's lives in healthy ways, not unhealthy ways. We'll talk about that in a second because that's what our passage is about. And to encourage one another to live for Christ. It's a very practical way to do that. Uh, formal church membership went out of style in a lot of churches in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And so there were a lot of churches like this one, actually, that had a formal membership process and never talked much about it. And so you get people who are essentially functioning as members and they've never formally joined the church. And that's on us. That's not on you guys. But one of the reasons we talk a lot more about that these days is what a delight to see people who have become Christians and landed here at Harvest and invest in one another's lives and are really kind of doing the reality of membership, step up and say, hey, and I'm going to formally join because I'm in. 
And this isn't about me. This is about the glory of God together. It's a beautiful thing. Well, okay, that, that brings us to today's passage. <laughs> Culturally, regardless of how we feel about that, the biblical vision is that we're involved in one another, mutually submitting to one another's, uh, involved in one another's lives out of reverence for Christ in a healthy way. Now, Jesus assumes that some version of this kind of one anothering is understood that our Christian life is not a purely individual affair. It is a group activity that was largely understood within the first century context. And in Matthew 7, what he says is, okay, now when you're doing that, do it well. Don't do it poorly. And actually doing it poorly is the focus of what he talks about in this passage. Because it often does happen poorly. Doesn't it? It's easy enough to talk in principle about being involved in one another's lives and doing life together. That sounds great. But in reality, when a group of Christians comes together, a group of sinners has come together. And sinners bring their sin to the table. And we don't always have one another's best interests in mind. We have our own sin. We have our own pride. We have our own issues. And it messes everything up. That's why many of us get uncomfortable with this kind of, kind of talk. It's not just our cultural bent. For some of us, any talk of being involved in one another's lives conjures up images of um, high-control religious environments, almost like semi-cult-like, you know? Like we all report to one another and somebody else tells us how to live our lives, and that just immediately sounds creepy. Or maybe it actually conjures up experiences, the things that you've seen or stories that you have heard of stuffy gatherings of hyper-nosy busybodies who have nothing better to do than get involved in each other's lives and tell one another how to live. That's not the glory of God. Some of us have experienced that. Maybe you've had an encounter with somebody who maybe felt that they had full freedom to point out something in your life that wasn't quite measuring up. And perhaps what they pointed out was a little bit more opinion than actually Bible. You come away from an experience like that feeling condemned, feeling defensive, feeling judged unfairly, feeling kind of burned. It's natural to kind of recoil and say, ah, not interested in going back there anymore. In this passage in Matthew 7, Jesus tells us why that happens, and he tells us how to avoid it. He warns us about a problem with the human heart, and he shows us how to get it right. The solution, it turns out, is not to avoid this vision of biblical community altogether, retreating behind the seemingly safe and very culturally acceptable walls of, hey, don't judge me, bro. (laughs) You live your life, let me live mine. That's not actually the solution to the problem. The solution, it turns out, is much more penetrating, much more difficult, and much more life transformative. The solution is a new heart. Let's look at what Jesus says here. Don't judge, he tells us, that you be not judged. If you go around judging people, they're going to judge you back. And guess what happens to that wonderful biblical community that's supposed to be taking place? It just falls down flat like a sandcastle hit by the incoming tide. It's just over. It's just over. So what does that mean? What is this negative kind of judging one another that destroys God's vision for biblical community? He tells us what the root of the problem is, and not surprisingly, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, the root of the problem is sin in the human heart. Look at verse 3. 
Jesus not only zeroes in on the issue here, but he phrases this very poignantly. He phrases it as a question. And the reason he phrases it as a question is he's trying to get our attention. He's trying to provoke reflection on on ourselves. He says, verse 3, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Let's just pause and think about that for a second. So clearly, he, he picks up on this fairly well-known um, image where, you know, somebody gets a, a speck of something in their eye, and, and they got to get it out. Of course, the problem, if you've ever had, you know, something stuck in your eye, a piece of sawdust or whatever, is you can't see your own eye, you know, unless you get up, like, close to the mirror. If you're out in a place where you don't have a mirror, um, it's like you need somebody to come, like, hey, is this thing, where is it, what, you know, what's going on? So he, he kind of picks up on that common experience, and then he adds this kind of really fun, crazy hyperbole to it to make his point, Right? Here's, here's this brother or sister in Christ with this speck in their eye. Something's wrong about their life. Something isn't measuring up. And yet you've got this whole log stuck in your own eye. Like they've got this tiny little piece of a log that came from like chopping wood or something that broke off and got in their eye. You've got the whole thing shoved in your face. I mean, it's clearly ridiculous. I've, I've got to believe that Jesus kind of had a wry little smile when he said this. And I got to believe that the crowd sitting around listening to him probably chuckled as a little murmur went through. Because it's just, it, it's obviously over the top. He's, he's using this not only to get our attention, but to help us see by hyperbole, by exaggeration, this crazy difference. So his point is pretty clear. You're pointing out a problem, or actually, he's not even gotten to the pointing out yet. He says, you're seeing. Why do you see, he says, the speck in your brother's eye? You haven't even talked to your brother yet. He's just getting us to reflect on the problem. You see the problem or the shortcoming in a brother or sister in Christ in their life, but you've got a comparatively massive set of problems in your own life, and the problem is you don't see it. Why is that, Jesus says? It's a very poignant way to, to put it, isn't it? He's, he's inviting us to stop and think about it. Hmm. I guess that is true, isn't it? He's, he's, he's inviting us to reflect on human nature, our own nature. Why is it we're the kind of people who so quickly see what's off in somebody else's life and we so often don't see what's off in our own lives, even when the thing that's off in our own lives is much bigger and much more obvious? We still don't see it. What he's saying is we've got this deep-seated issue that we have to realize that we are not at all objective when it comes to evaluating our own lives. By the way, notice he never says you were wrong about the speck in the brother's eye. You often are seeing accurately that somebody's life isn't measuring up. That's not the problem. The problem is you see that quickly and you don't see what's going on in your own life nearly as quickly. And the reason is because of pride. That's the Bible's word for it. Uh, Pride, arrogance, self-reliance. I see things from my own point of view and my world orbits around me. That's sin. Jeremiah chapter 17, the Bible says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's what Jesus is picking up on here. The heart is deceitful. That means it, it lies to us. It, it, it kids us. It, it, my heart tells me things that aren't true. It paints pictures that aren't reality. It sees things that aren't there. And as Jesus is pointing out, it fails to see things that are there. It's deceitful. And it's deceitful above all things. That's, that's strong language. 
There is no one and nothing more deceptive and deceitful in the entire universe than a human heart. Friends, do you think about yourself that way? Do I think about myself that way? Is, is my basic assumption about the things I'm seeing that, well, oh, I better double check it because ah, is, is the closer it gets to me, the probably the least objective I am. That's what our Lord is inviting us to consider. The heart is desperately sick, not just in need of a little bit of improvement here or there. Desperately, horribly ill, and the question at the end, who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question. I'm never going to be able to figure, if I think I am being completely honest with myself and I'm totally realistic in everything I think, I am the most deceived person of all. I cannot figure out my own heart. It is too deceptive. I tend to minimize my faults, rationalize my poor decisions, and generally see myself in a much better light than other people see me. And when that happens, more often than not, their view is more accurate. Bottom line is that when it comes to me and my own life, I'm usually the least objective guy in the room. So we need one another to help us see ourselves accurately. But what Jesus is doing here is he's warning us about the deceitfulness of our own hearts in the process. How quickly and easy it is for a deceitful human heart to use God's vision for biblical community as an excuse to focus on everybody else's problems and ignore my own. Because after all, I'm doing the bidding of God, aren't I? Oh, that deceitful heart. <laughs> I'm justifying my own sin. So he says that's the problem, verse 3. The heart has this natural sinful bent to see other people's sins, shortcomings, and faults more than our own. And when it gets lived out, that's verse 4. You then go and say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own. It's absurd. It's crazy. As if you're an authority on getting wood out of the eye. You've got an entire forest in your head, right? I mean, come on. And, and that's his point. The sarcasm and the humor is intentional to, for the shock value to make the point. This kind of heart deceitfulness leads us oftentimes, if it's unchecked, to engage in conversations that on their face are patently ridiculous and we're the last person who knows it. That's the deceitfulness of the human heart. I go to my brother to help him, but in my own heart and mind, I'm actually superior to him. That's the essence of what Jesus means when he says, don't judge. He's not talking about whether or not we help evaluate one another's lives. He's talking about the position of my heart when I'm doing it. And if the position of my heart is assuming I'm good and you're not, so I, the one who's got to figure it out, I'm going to help you, who clearly doesn't, get it right. Oh, I'll never say those things what's going on in here. The moment I'm in that position, friends, I've lost. I've already lost. Because I'm assuming I'm coming at you from a position of having it together. It, it's an arrogance. It's a, an unhealthy condescension. As if I've got it all together and I don't need that help myself. It's pride. If I'm unwilling to deal with my own sin, I'm in no place to tell another Christian to deal with his, especially when mine may be just as significant, or in the case of what Jesus is saying, perhaps massively more significant. 
Don't go at one another without deep introspection. A deep place of humility and a real healthy skepticism and fear of how deceptive our own hearts are. That's what Jesus is telling us. So what do we do about this? We've got this problem. We're supposed to be in one another's lives in some sort of healthy way, but by default, we don't see healthy. So how in the world are we supposed to avoid this problem of verse four where we're making all of these ridiculous involvements in one another's lives? Well, friends, at this point, that's where for so many of us, we say, just forget the whole thing. Man, just what a, forget it. (laughs) Honestly, it is far easier to just say, look, you just deal with your stuff. I'll believe the best in you. I'm gonna deal with my stuff and let's just go on. Okay, And then when we come from a culture that says how you're, that's how you're supposed to live anyway, man, it just starts to sound like, why mess with it at all? And what I find interesting at this point in the passage is our Lord could very well have said those exact words. And it still would have completely fit the context. Verses 1 through 4 could have read exactly as they do. Um, judge not lest you be judged and why do you see the you know go to your brother and say get the speck out of your eye when you've got a log in your own eye and then verse 5 could have said so therefore leave your brother's eyeball alone (laughs) right I mean just don't mess with it dude you've got enough of your own problems like go take care of your own business let him take care of his business everybody will just be fine all right quit being a bunch of religious nosy people and busybodies it's not what I want you do your thing your brother do his thing, it's all going to be fine. It's not actually what he says. Look at verse 5. Here's his solution. You hypocrite. <laughs> We've run into that word before in the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? You're acting as if you've got it all together. You believe you've got it all together and you don't. You're a mess. So don't be that kind of person. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Our Lord's solution is not mind your own business. Our Lord's solution is take care of your own stuff first. He doesn't necessarily mean that we all need to be perfectly sinless before we can go talk to anybody because then none of us would ever talk to anybody. But what he does say is we need to be honestly humble, honest, in recognizing the deceitfulness of our own hearts and humble enough to have invited people to do the same thing for us that I'm about to do for them, to speak into our lives. You see, this is where the gospel of Jesus makes such a difference. The the whole message of the Christian faith that we're supposed to be putting on display is the gospel. That just means good news. It starts with bad news. The Bible tells us that we as human beings are rebellious and, and, and we have sinned before God, so we're morally culpable. We are guilty before him. And the news gets worse because there's nothing we can do about our guilt. That's where the gospel starts and that's where the good news comes in. God came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. When Jesus came as a man to live the perfect life that we should have lived but couldn't and to die the sinner's death that we should have died but didn't and no longer have to because he's done it for us. It's all by grace. That's the good news. And then the Bible invites us to respond by admitting to God that he is right. We are sinners. Our hearts are desperately wicked. We cannot figure it out. And to humbly come to him and say, God, I've got nothing. Would you just accept me and forgive me anyway because of what Jesus did? That's how you become a Christian. It's when you've made that kind of a commitment to God. And so now he's addressing a bunch of Christians and he's saying, guys, that's how you started your Christian life. So guess what? That's how you continue to live your Christian life. 
It all begins with understanding I've got my own stuff. I am at best one sinner talking to another. I'm probably even a worse sinner talking to a slightly better sinner. But the point is, we're all sinners. And we are all trying to put Jesus on display by relying on him and his grace and his mercy to change us. So, so what does it look like in a church to do that in a sort of gospel-centered or gospel-shaped way? We don't avoid getting in one another's lives, but we're not a bunch of busybodies just telling one another what to do and judging each other. How does that look? Is there anything in between those two extremes? As we turn the corner for home, let me suggest a few things that can help us think this through. Uh, More could be added to this list, but this is hopefully a good start. First, doing this well looks like repentance. It looks like repentance. And that's a word, as Christians, that we are very familiar with, are we not? We we know, if you're a Christian, you know what it means to repent. It means to admit to God that I am wrong, and on my own, my heart is desperately sick. I cannot live a perfectly righteous life. And so I am turning away from the lifestyle of self-reliance, where I'm even trying. God, I'm just turning toward you. I bring nothing to the table. So would you just forgive me, and would you cleanse me, and would you, through your spirit living in me, make me a more holy person than I can be on my own? One of the things that that does for you is it totally undermines pride. By definition, right? If I still have, to to the extent I still have pride, that's the extent to which I've not truly repented. To repent means to renounce my self-reliance. Pride means I'm going to do it my own way because I'm a good person. And so all of this begins with repentance. That's where our Lord is driving our attention. Repentance is how we get the log out of our own eye. We go to Jesus and say, you know what? There is an issue in my brother's life or my sister's life and I feel like I'm close enough to them that I probably need to say something, but I'm not ready to say anything until I am coming from the perspective of an equal or worse sinner humbly talking to another sinner who's a fellow along the journey. God, I gotta deal with my heart stuff first and so I repent of my pride. I repent of my sin. Jesus, if there's pride and sin in my heart that I don't see, help me see it. Give me a heart to renounce it and confess it, ask you to forgive it and cleanse it. Taking this passage seriously starts with every Christian coming clean before God in prayer about the deceitfulness of our own hearts, inviting him to show us our sin so that we can joyfully and humbly help other Christians do the same. Then how do we live this out? Secondly, It begins with repentance first, but secondly, it also means committing to help one another then live for Christ. That's what it means, biblically, to be part of a local congregation, a local church. We are all in. We are committing to one another to help one another live for Christ and doing it well with God's help. Many of us know what it's like to maybe sit in a small group or a Bible study and hear another Christian brother or sister say something that we know is not right. Like they're saying, God wants me to do this, and we're going like, oh, I can think of like six scripture verses that make it clear that that's not what he wants you to do. And then there's that moment of awkwardness, right? What do I do? Do I say anything? Or maybe we know somebody, a family member, a friend, and we just see them living out... um, a pattern of behavior, maybe because they're under a lot of stress or a lot of pressure in some area of their life and they've started on a road that it's like, wow, you're a Christian. Like, I know you love Jesus, but everything you're doing is not reflecting Jesus here. And then it's like, but but what do I say? 
What does it look like to support a brother or sister in Christ? I don't want to you know, kick somebody when they're down or make them feel worse if they're already feeling bad. Or, and, and so we, we get in that, that wrestle. You know what I'm talking about? What does it look like to be involved in one another's, one another's lives well? In general, there are exceptions to all of these statements. But in general, I think four things can help. First, doing it well means pausing, praying, and checking my own motives. I'm sure every once in a while there's just a moment where you're either going to say something on the spot or the time is gone, and, and maybe you do that from time to time. But in general, it's usually wise to pause, pray, and check my own motives. You see, again, this acknowledges the deceitfulness of the heart and, and some self-awareness. Most of us either tend to be um, kind of truth-tellers or relationship nurturers, Right? I mean, all of us like both of those things, but by, just by default, by the way we're wired, we tend to lean more one way than the other way. And if you recognize that you're leaning more toward the truth-teller side, you're usually the kind of person who's really agitated. You want to make sure everybody gets it right. <laughs> Others of us tend more toward maybe not saying anything because we don't want to rock the relational boat. Yeah, it may bother us that, that something was just said that's not right, but we would rather not risk any kind of relational waves. Either way, whatever your natural tendency is, check your motives. God, am I going to say something just to set them straight or to make sure everything was said right without thinking about the person and what's going on in their lives and how they can pursue Christ better? What's my real motive here? Or alternatively, am I going to choose not to say anything? Am I just going to avoid the issue because I hate conflict? I'm not going to help them win. I'm not going to help them reach for the Christ that they love so deeply. I'm just going to let it go because I don't want to rock the boat. Either way, God's glory in their life may not be my main motive, at least not at first. Pausing, praying, and inviting God to check our own motives lets us reframe our thinking, humble our hearts, and make sure we know why we're doing what we're doing. Secondly, if I am going to go talk to a Christian brother or sister, about something in their life, asking questions and listening is usually a good first step. Again, there's probably exceptions, but in general, that's usually a good first step. Questions, genuine questions, followed by a period of actually listening for the answer, is usually a better way to start than declarative statements about what I see going on in your life and what you need to do about it. That just kind of shuts down conversation and communicates. There's no relationship here. There's only evaluation. <laughs> Questions say, hey, I'm noticing some things. I'm concerned about some things, but where are you at in the process? Let's talk. To ask a question is itself an admission that I may be seeing some things accurately, but I probably don't have the whole story. Maybe you've thought this through more than I'm aware of. Maybe there's more information I don't have. I totally see how that could be the case. I'm not assuming you're completely wrong here. I just have some questions. Can we talk? And you ask a question, and then you listen. And sometimes it turns out that like, wow, they actually had a good reason for thinking what they're thinking or doing what they're doing that you didn't know about. And you're like, wow, that makes so much sense. Thank you for that. Let me pray for you. How can I walk with you in this and encourage you in this? Other times, there is no other information. <laughs> I'm just truly living contrary to the way God wants me to live. But when you come to me and ask the question, it leads me to say, okay, am I living consistent with God's will or not? Questions like, how do you think Jesus wants to make his name great in this tough, tough situation you're in? 
I don't know. I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking about the fact I'm in this tough situation and I'm praying God will get me out of it. That's all I want right now. Well, see, what you just said to me without saying it is, yeah, but you're a Christian. You want much more than that, right? You want God's glory, not just comfort. Yes, of course that's what I want. Thank you for helping me see it. But you see, when you come at me and just tell me that, I'm defensive. When you ask the question, it invites me to consider. Asking questions and genuinely listening is a good way to lead off. Third, relationship matters. Doing this well recognizes that relationship does matter. Even within a church, especially a church our size, I mean, any church more than like 20 people, and definitely by the time you've gotten to a couple of few hundred people, there's no way that even all of the members who have formally joined are going to actually have close relationship with one another. And doing this well recognizes that within a church, those who are the closest relationally to a person are usually the ones who are best positioned to remove eye specks. You know what I mean? Usually the ones who are the closest relationally are in the best place to ask a question without it coming across as overly judgmental because the relationship has already convinced me by experience that you're for me and you're with me. And the more I know you and the more I trust you, the more I'm able to let my guard down with you and not feel threatened by you because I know where you're coming from. Somebody else who I don't know, they come at me with some hard question. I'm like, I don't know if you're being arrogant and judgmental or not, but if you're my friend, I pretty much already know you care about me. And that makes it a lot easier to listen to. A good friend of mine who was a mentor of mine for many years uh, used to like to say that, that relationships are like a bridge. Friendships are like a bridge. And the stronger the bridge, the more the weight of truth you can drive across it <laughs> without the bridge collapsing. I think that's, that's a good analogy. The more I know you and trust you, the more hard truth I can hear from you and I can take it because I know you're with me and you're for me. Sometimes we don't want to say anything because we're afraid it might hurt the relationship. But friends, often it's the exact opposite that's true. Relationships, the stronger they are, are able to handle the truth. And that's why one of the most fundamental commitments of being a church member is I'm going to go pursue relationships with a group of people that I can get to know well so we can invite one another into our lives. So relationship matters. Doing this well means pausing, praying, checking my motives, asking questions and listening, recognizing relationship matters. Lastly, it means forgiving and being forgiven. Forgiving and being forgiven. Here's the bottom line. Relationships are risky. We all know that, right? There's no such thing as a relationship in which people will not get hurt, in which there's no risk of things not going the way you want them to because we're all sinners. At some point, we will mess this up. We will. I'll stay silent and watch a friend, you know, drive themselves off a cliff when I could have put up a warning sign and I should have said something and I didn't. Or I will go in and speak maybe too definitively when I didn't have the whole picture. Sometimes we're going to do this poorly, but we're Christians. We're Christians. Repentance and forgiveness are the foundational bedrock of our entire experience with God and therefore of the entire experience that a group of Christians in a local church is supposed to have with one another. So when I've failed to invest well in the life of a Christian friend, I need to be humble enough to go to them privately and just own my missteps, my sins, and ask him to forgive me. 
you know, I saw this coming and I should have said something and, and, and I let my fear over how you might respond stop me and I feel like I did you a disservice. Would you forgive me? You know, I said something to you and I, I jumped to conclusions. I now realize that I shouldn't have. That's on me. Would you forgive me? I'm sorry. Do you know what kind of a healing balm that is <laughs> in a relationship? Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, the Bible says to a group of Christians like us, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, Christians in a local church, it's going to happen. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. All of that puts Jesus on display. It shows a world that would rather say, don't judge me, bro. That there's something a lot more to just individualism, and there's something way more than kind of nosy, bitty, busybodyism. I think I just made that up on the fly, but go with it, okay? <laughs> it says there's something much greater than that. There is a community in which people can submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and it's beautiful because it reflects who God is. May God continue to create more of that kind of community in our independent self-reliant Pacific Northwest today than he did yesterday, all for his glory. Would you pray with me to that end? God, we come to you as your people in your church, recognizing that this business of judging and being judged is um, a very live one, and it's uncomfortable. And we recognize the truth in so much of what you say and the pride in our hearts. And I, for one, recognize the, the pull of just saying, man, everybody keep their space, because we recognize this can be overdone and done poorly in so many ways. But Jesus, I pray as a people, you would give us a heart to first and foremost understand that our heart is deceitful and desperately sick, and to lean on you in humility, clinging to you to cure our hearts, and from that place of humility to love and serve one another through relationship, through prayer, through grace, all to see your glory manifest in one another's lives. Not to feel better about ourselves and to make ourselves look good, but Jesus to make you look good. God, I ask that you would make yourself look good in this church and how we relate to one another and give us a heart to rely on you to make that happen more. We pray these things as the group of people at Harvest who love and worship your name. Amen.